So hello and welcome to the podcast of the Royal New Zealand College of Urgent Care. My name is Guy Melrose and today I'm delighted to be joined by a couple of physicians who have travelled the world seeking out adventure, culture, history, nature, food, people, learning opportunities and life. Between them, they've worked in all corners of the globe and they have worked together in the high altitude environment of the Himalayas in Nepal. Both hail from North America, one's Canadian and one from the USA. Both have experience working in urgent care clinics. The catalyst for this conversation is a fabulous book called The Unseen Body. And having just finished the book, I know we're in for a fascinating discussion on the wonders of the human body, the importance of travel and the privilege that it is to have studied medicine. So first up is someone who probably needs little introduction if you've ever listened to our podcasts over the years. Urgent care physician, wilderness medicine expert who, among other accomplishments, has worked a season at the highest clinic in the world at Everest ER and elected member of our college executive committee. So welcome back to Dr. Dinesh Dionarain. Dinesh, hello. Hello. Hi, Guy. Thanks. Thanks for that very kind introduction. Thanks for joining us again. And it's with great pleasure to welcome to our podcast an internist, paediatrician and ER physician, a naturalist, adventure traveller, forager, foodie, teacher of wilderness survival and prehistoric crafts, medical writer and author of the wonderful aforementioned book, The Unseen Body. It's Dr. Jonathan Reisman. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I mentioned that you two have worked together in Nepal, so I think that's a great place to start. Um, Dinesh, how did you to first meet? What were your recollections of, of meeting John for the first time? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, first of all, let me just say it's great to see John again. <laughs> we had a, quite a fast friendship um, throughout our time in Nepal and shared a lot of kind of common interests and, and adventures together over that time. So it's really great to see John. Um, yeah, yeah. My recollection is, is um, we basically kind of arrived in Kathmandu, you know, in the heat of a of a tropical city um, and basically we're thrown together as volunteers for the Himalayan Rescue Association. Um, I think we met first at the hotel itself, if I can re remember correctly. And I remember we shared a big smile and a big handshake uh, and that kind of excitement that you have right before a, a big adventure. So I can remember it being sort of a giddy sort of a time. The specifics are a little bit hazy to me, but maybe John can fill in some more. Yes, it was definitely at the hotel in Kathmandu. My wife, Anna, was there with me as well. And uh, I think we hit it off right away. And Anna also became a big fan of yours, uh, Dinesh. And uh, we were excited by the, the upcoming trip. As you said, it was very, very exciting anticipating it. My wife did uh, have a maybe a not so pristine lussie while we were in Kathmandu and delayed our expedition by a few days by getting some gastroenteritis. Um, but I think that just made us a closer knit team before we set off. <laughs> I think so. That's, that's rekindling some memories. And, and I think it is a bit, uh, as you can attest to a bit of a rite of passage, I think, uh, uh, gastrointestinally, um, <laughs> when you visit, uh, uh, you know, countries like Nepal. <laughs> Well, a spoiler alert, that, that's a chapter in the book uh, that we might touch on in the future, gastroenteritis. Uh, so you two met in the, um, you, you met for the first time on the ground, you hadn't connected before then. And Dinesh, you mentioned when we talked to you about your time working at Everest ER that they tried to connect people who 
they thought would get on together that the, the owner of EverSDR kind of um, looked at people and thought who who would be good working together at high altitude for 50 days um, so had there been any uh, pre-planning with you two um, because you, you obviously got on really well when you met um, but was that just by sheer luck or, or, or um, had there been any planning in there? Well, I think that's a, a real testament uh, to Luann Freer, who's, um, you know, the founding organizer for Everest ER. She takes uh, the social aspect of, of groups, putting group medical group teams together uh, very much into consideration. Um, her organization now sits under the auspices of the Himalayan Rescue Association. So they've kind of um, basically buddied up. But that's a kind of an ongoing consideration is really that kind of social mix, the mix of people, because as you can imagine, you're in a remote camp under potentially very stressful uh, circumstances and and really your ability to get along with each other and to relate to each other I, I think is part of the fundamental um, aspects of, of delivering the service that you're there and doing the job that you're there to do. And John do you find that when you're um, planning to go on a trip like that is are you apprehensive about who you're going to be working with or has your experience been that the sort of person who wants to travel and and work in wilderness type medicine are generally the sorts of people that you that you gel with. Yeah, I think that is true. That it's it's sort of a self-selecting group that ends up practicing medicine or being on one of these expeditions in some often a third world country, often a uncomfortable setting, you know, with minimal resources, minimal escape opportunities. Um, so. In my experience, I, I don't think I've ever experienced uh, much friction at all on one of these trips, whether with other healthcare providers or um, I worked on a few uh, as ship doctor on a few wildlife cruises in the Arctic and Antarctica. And even the wildlife guides, you know, even the people working in the restaurant on the cruise, I mean, we're all in the middle of nowhere. We're all part of a team. And I think that mindset really helps people get along and I mean, I, I think the same is true for Dinesh, but I generally get along well with just about anybody. So I think that really helps uh, the mindset being, when practicing wilderness medicine. What were you two doing in, um, in, in Nepal at that time? So that, that was ex expressly for uh, our work with the Himalayan Rescue Association. So that's a three-month commitment uh, over the season so you go there sort of expressly for that purpose and there is a period before you go there of communication where you know there's a lot of logistics that need to be sorted out um the first uh segment of the trip is actually a really interesting time because you're spending a lot of time actually getting all the documentations in order and everything and, and as you can imagine um the nepalese system of government and organization probably differs somewhat to new zealand <laughs> and differs I would suspect from the US and, and from Canada, wherever I feel from. So um, an adherence to a particular timeline and efficiency <laughs> may be a little bit different from, from the expectations for the country that we come from. And you say expectations. When you're committing to a three-month trip in this sort of setting, you, you obviously have to have some expectation as to what to see, but then some things are going to be curveballs that you have to, to react to. Um, so do either of you have any examples of, of any, um, anything in that three-month period that, that really was unexpected or, or came, out of, came out of left field? I guess there, to bring it up yet again, the, the case of gastroenteritis my, that my wife contracted in, uh, in Kathmandu was one curveball. And I could have seen it being 
Um, I could have seen it ruffling more feathers than it did, but because Dinesh is pretty easygoing, we did just all decided, all right, we'll wait two days and she's better. We'll head out. And so we did. And I think also, um, I don't remember either of us getting very ill on the trip. I know I suffered from some altitude sickness when we first um, made the initial ascent to the town of Manang where we worked. Um, it wasn't a terrible curveball. I guess I wasn't sure I would get it, but in the end I did. It was, it was actually a good, a good education in, in altitude sickness. I find when, when a physician gets the disease themselves, you know, can often be uh, very illustrative and kind of help you understand what patients are going through and even what questions to ask them in the future. And that wasn't the first time that's happened to me when I traveled to India as a medical student, I had a case of gastritis that I will never forget. And that really um, taught me exactly what to ask people um, to, to suss out if they have gastritis or not. And the same goes for sinusitis. I had had neither before, um, but then developed both um, while in India. And a case of the chills also with gastroenteritis, a topic I keep bringing up. And I tell that story in the book. But um, so traveling often, you know, you get new perspectives, you discover new foods and cultures and sites and experiences. But as a doctor, you can also get new diseases, which can uh, can be an education in themselves. Yeah, and um, you know, uh, not to give too much away about uh, John's book, uh, there are some very colorful passages in it, and and it's a really entertaining read. And I have to admit, I uh, not that I was kind of. Um, you know, I did definitely feel a sense of empathy towards John and his plight at that time. But it's a it's a very entertaining passage in the book, and I think uh, I think if you do pick up a copy, you're going to really enjoy that, especially whether you're uh, come from a lay background or a medical background, um, and especially if you've ever experienced it yourself. Well, I think the one of the interesting things about being a doctor. Or, or any kind of clinician is that you have an insight into illness and, and disease and, and what can go wrong and, and, and what can head south, so to speak. And for me, that does sometimes impact on decisions. And the, the, the thing I often say is when, when I've been to the, um, the Cook Island of, of Rarotonga, a lot of people like to rent scooters and, and race around this tiny little island um, on scooters and it looks great fun. But my reason for not renting a scooter when I go there is that I'm aware that there's no neurosurgical service for quite a long way. Um, and, and, and it's a four hour flight back to Auckland before you can you can see a neurosurgeon. So I choose to rent a car instead. And um, so you guys are trained in, in wilderness medicine. You're prepared to go and deliver medicine in remote places. But do you not get a little bit concerned that you yourselves are going to be a long way from help and 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 medical attention or do you trust in in the wilderness medicine system that you're and, and your general good health that you'd be okay no i i can say that that i think there's this fine balance between you know deciding as you did not to rent a scooter because you're aware of what the monumental effort it would take to get someone with a head injury to definitive neurosurgical care but at the same time i think Maybe because you know, or maybe in my head, because I know a lot about health and disease, I sort of think I'm a little invincible, or at least I have uh, some plausible deniability that I hold on to um, when planning to go to the ends of the earth, knowing that, for instance, in Antarctica, there's basically no hope. You know, if someone has a heart attack there, then they're in big trouble or a head injury or a variety of other conditions. So I guess I, I, I vacillate between being no fun because I'm aware of the bad things that can happen and 
on the other extreme, you know, saying, I know what can happen. Therefore I can throw caution to the wind and have some fun. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. And I have to say, um, you know, part of your risk mitigation strategy, um, I found as well, is that you, you basically, the, the goalposts change when you go somewhere else. And so you think in terms of the context that you're in, not the context necessarily that you come from. And I think, I don't know about you, John, but I felt like being part of the Nepalese culture where a lot of it's embedded in their religions, um, uh, where they have kind of principles in their beliefs, like non-attachment and, and, and a stronger possibly spiritual spiritual ties that we see in a lot of cultures in the West, that you actually become a little bit more aligned to that feeling. Um, I won't go as far as to say a, a fatalism, but you actually also seem to, to allow things to happen in the way that they happen in the context that you're in. To some extent, you have to go with the flow when you're in a place like that and, you know, do as the Romans do um, in order sure. to enjoy it. And, and that's part of the fun, of course, getting into the local mindset. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned your wife Couldn't catching the gastroenteritis there. Um, how do how do they feel your your respective wives about those uh, those dangers of travel, both when they're with you and when they're without you? Are they understanding of of the same? Do they have the same perspective as you? My my wife definitely does. We we both traveled quite a bit before we met each other, and and traveled again once we met. We traveled together quite extensively, and so travel sort of always been this. Uh, one of many themes to our relationship. So including to wilderness areas. Um, and my wife and I had both traveled quite extensively in the Arctic and elsewhere before we met. And so she's no stranger to being kind of in the middle of nowhere. I do think the calculus changes in her mind and perhaps also in my mind and other doctors' minds as we get older. Maybe, maybe I or others will shift more towards the no fun end of the spectrum. But for now, I still have, I guess, my boyish feeling of in invincibility I'm holding on to. So I'm willing to, uh, long, to go. Long may it last, John. Long may it last. <laughs> I hope so. Um, now, John, on your website, you mentioned um, that you're a co-creator um, of a, a, a thing called Anatomy Eats, which is an anatomy and physiology-based dinner series. And chatting to Dinesh about your time in Manang, he mentions um, watching you both watching the, the process of butchering a goat from start to finish and how all the parts are used. So you're obviously somebody who's very interested in, the, um, the uh, as I mentioned, a foodie. You're interested in food and, and where it comes from. And um, this back, was back in 2016. Was this part of the, your journey towards that, or were you already on a, a foodie journey at that point? And, and Dinesh, maybe you could talk about your experiences of watching this this goat being butchered. Um, yeah, I would I would say that my my foodie journey began actually in medical school, um, and it was very much um, in parallel to my medical education. My education all about kind of meat and you know, internal organs, butchering, et cetera. Um, and actually began on the first day of medical school, um, we started dissecting our cadavers in the class that we call anatomy lab. And while for most people, anatomy lab would be a place to go to destroy your appetite. For me, surprisingly, um, anatomy lab with, you know, cadavers preserved in formaldehyde scattered across the room being dissected apart by nervous medical students um, it was a place where I actually got interested in food, partly because there was a one professor in particular who enjoyed pointing out which muscles in the 
cadavers that we were studying, we were memorizing the name and attachments and functions and innervations of every muscle. And he enjoyed pointing out which muscles in our cadavers corresponded to certain cuts of beef. So which parts of the thigh corresponded to the top round and bottom round and eye of round and how the psoas major muscle is the filet mignon or tenderloin. Um, and that really got me interested. That, and that was really the beginning of the whole journey. And even while still in anatomy lab, that first semester of medical school, I read a lot about butchering and visited a slaughterhouse. And that story is also in the book, in the chapter on uh, lungs. And uh, I just became more and more interested both in eating familiar parts of unusual animals and unusual parts of familiar animals, I would say. And when I was in Nepal, you know, we did get, get some interesting opportunities to uh, sample uh, some, some yak meat, some goat, some chicken, which was, uh, which was very interesting. Yeah, I do remember that being an interesting time um, from a... a uh a culinary point of view <laughs> and 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 yeah uh, similar to john like like that impression of watching that goat being butchered from start to finish you know from a whole and complete animal and then being separated out into constituent parts and then getting some insight um you know from one of the, our co-workers uh local co-workers as to how each of those parts would be used and and that to me was actually really quite fascinating i, I don't think i share uh, john's um uh kind of carnivorous voracious appetite <laughs> and, and and wanting to necessarily consume it and in fact uh, it, it's kind of it kind of made me smile because since our time in Manang I've probably moved a little bit in a different direction and, and I'm mostly vegetarian at the moment <laughs> so uh, actually that and that was a question for John I, I was curious um uh, I definitely kind of in in the book I found it really fascinating and I agree with your point of view of um you know the indigenous cultures and their right to procure ind their indigenous food and is often better for their health, uh, especially in the context that they live in and the environments that they live in. But how do you feel about that in, in more in a more global view? Do you think that's a realistic thing for for us or or would you think that, um, you know, maybe we should be moving in a different direction? Right. Well, that's a great question. And food, food is a big uh, theme in the book, even though you'd think there'd be no connection to med talk of of disease and the human body. But um, I do, one thing I do want to say is, you know, I do, while I'm certainly fascinated by how the parts of anatomy that we learn about as uh, medical students and then really spend our lives dealing with and um, investigating and, uh, you know, treating and, and trying to restore to health these body parts, that, that, that they then become food in animals, at least, you know, after death is sort of a something that fascinated me from the beginning of medical school and that fascination has never left me. And while I do talk about that a lot in the book, I do want to point out, I, I saw a comment online that um, a reader felt I was promoting a paleo type of diet. I'm not, I certainly think that, you know, vegetable and fruit-based diet is probably the healthiest there is. Um, and that, uh, you know, a meat only diet is not, um, not desirable, especially in modern life, unless, unless you're living in prehistoric Arctic in which case there's no other choice. Uh, but that, you know, that is a, a topic in the book as well. Dinesh, as, you're, as you brought up, I, I visit, um, in the chapter on fat, I visit um, Arctic Alaska, where I got the opportunity to learn about the traditional Inupiat Eskimo diet, which before modern times was almost 100% from animals with more than half of all calories coming from animal fat in particular. Um, 
basically the most extreme human diet, I think, anywhere on earth and the one that's most different from the diet that we probably evolved to eat. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, for instance, in the Arctic, where, uh, especially in that part of the Arctic in Northern Alaska, where the whale population is, is healthy and in good numbers and very extensively studied. And there's, you know, I do think certain uh, traditional activity like whale hunting is probably sustainable, given that the numbers being hunted are very small, given that the, the limits on numbers of whales that can be harvested are controlled for the entire area of the Alaskan Arctic, not just locally, but in a you know, in a broader fashion to make sure that uh, there's no overhunting in any one locality. Um, you know, bowhead whales, which are mostly hunted there, are not as healthy in other parts of the world. And so certainly that hunting may not be appropriate everywhere. I do think that in that area, a traditional activity like that, that is very tightly regulated and can sustainably continue. And one thing that really impressed me there was that there, the native hunting population is very much. Um, Inter, um, interconnected with the science community. So every single whale that is harvested, actually the same goes for many animals, every polar bear, every uh, various other uh, animals that are hunted, every single specimen is, is brought, it, it, scientists are brought to it and they take samples from various body parts and blood samples and really study extensively the populations to ensure that they're healthy. And um, that was, I thought, really fascinating and probably helps uh, you know, make it a more stable and sustainable activity. But I certainly do not think that everyone can just live the way we did, you know, 2000 years ago, where, where the, the pop human population was very low, and you could set a fire and burn down a forest to make grasses grow and attract more prey animals for you and your tribe. I mean, we can't do that anymore. So I, I do think there's a lot of uh, ways in which traditional activities um, might need to change just because there are so many people and we have such a, you know, techno with technology, such a increased power over the natural world, ability to manipulate it and change it and destroy it, unfortunately. So I think a lot does have to change. So I'm not advocating for any particular lifestyle or diet there. And I think my mind there turns to, what have you two seen in your travels that, um, maybe makes you fear that certain um, practices or certain traditions are going to be lost uh, in, future, in future generations. Are you seeing uh, a dwindling of, of these skills that, are, uh, that have been taught for centuries and, and traditions because of society moving on and, and the modern world encroaching? And I guess a follow-up to that would be, what can medicine still learn from the traditional um, kind of medical um, teachings from from back back in um, Dinesh mentioned um, from the book um, that you ran into Annie is it the um, yeah the, the elder in, in uh, Nepal um, and some of the things that you you can learn from them so so is there is there stuff that we can still learn in modern medicine from traditional things in addition to are we actually going to lose these things in the future yeah, and Dinesh, Dinesh was good friends with Ani, actually, the Tibetan Lama, Tibetan Buddhist Lama living in a cave um, about a two hours walk from our clinic in Manang where we worked. Um, I do think that, you know, traditional knowledge in one way is useful simply because of, you know, traditional cures and therapies. You know, a lot, a lot of something I often think about is how modern medicines, whether they're pills or whether they're bags of intravenous solutions, you know, they look 
as far from a natural thing as can possibly be. You know, they seem wholly fabricated from a laboratory with no hint of any natural source or anything. They're basically as industrial and synthetic as anything you can imagine. And yet when you, you know, when we learn about them in medical school, each has a history, how it was developed, how it was refined. And often they do come from natural sources. They do come from traditional medicines that were used for for centuries and millennia, and then just were more and more refined as chemistry and biology, as science advanced, you know, they're kind of made cleaner in a way by being made more pure so that we could rely on them to treat disease with minimal side effects, um, which in some ways is an improvement upon the kind of messy mix of chemicals that come from any living thing in nature. Um, but so I do think that just in, in offering traditional cures, um, there's a there's a knowledge that can be lost in that way, you know, just medicine, men and women treating people over centuries and generations and remembering and passing down and uh, their keen observation skills, you know, that's something that uh, reading a textbook can't really give you. Um, But I guess beyond that, there's just sort of the lifestyle and the life ways of people. And I think a lot of times, you know, there's, we often debate what's healthier and it's, very hard to figure out what is healthier. You know, it takes a tremendous amount of effort and coordination and studying and a scientific approach and humans and doctors and the medical history has often been very wrong about what we think is good for us or what we think prevents disease or treats disease. I mean, we've been so horribly wrong so many times. And so it's really hard to get at that truth. And I guess for me, it's not perfect, but often I just think, how did people do it in ancient times or prehistoric times? And often I feel like that uh, gives you a hint about what, like, sort of, in a way, what our bodies are meant to do or designed to do. Or um, so I do think that in that lifestyle, also there's there's a wisdom there that we hopefully won't lose. Yeah, and one thing I really enjoyed about your book, John, is, uh, and I remember us having conversations in Menanga about it, about your interest in fungi and um, foraging for mushrooms. Um, and and if you look at a lot of uh, kind of our understanding of medications uh, and our use medications that are, are you know still in use today, you know you know aspirin having been derived from willow bark. Um, you know, atropo belladonna as being the source of atropine. Uh, sometimes we start to forget that even in, in what we consider to be um, modern medicine, we actually owe uh, a debt to our kind of foraging backgrounds and our understanding of pharmacology from very early times. Um, so it's kind of interesting if people take an interest in hi- the history of medicine, they'll see that connection environmentally and biologically with the way we practice in modern medicine. Right. And I think there's a tendency to see modern medicine as like walled off or, you know, divorced from history or sort of just this ultra modern technologized synthetic bubble that, that, you know, takes people away from the disease ridden natural world and puts them in this sterilized, clean, unnatural place. Um, but yeah, the connections to, through history and even in the present to the natural world are abundant. And that was one of the things I really loved learning um, in medical school was was about all those connections and the story behind the medications that we often use today. And do you, both of you have any, um, your, your work in wilderness medicine, how does it then feed back into your work in the sterile clinical hospital clinic world that uh, that you both go back to? whether you're working in urgent cares or emergency departments and, and hospitals, um, what do you 
both take from that wilderness experience back into that that informs your your sort of modern shall we say medical practice I can say, I guess one thing is, you know, one of the most obvious differences is the lack of technology. So the lack of imaging uh, technology like CAT scans and x-rays, which we, you know, increasingly rely on in modern medicine and certainly in my practice uh, working as an ER doctor. You know, I I feel like sometimes, like when we were in Menang or when I've um, treated patients in some of my other wilderness medicine trips to remote parts of the world, I I found that I, for instance, I had to feel a patient's pulse with my hand on their wrist. And it occurred to me that I, it's so infrequent that I have to do that because patients are often just put on a monitor. You know, they get electrode stickers on their chest and I look at their heartbeat on a screen. And it occurred to me how rare it is that I actually put my hand on a patient to feel their pulse, which is sort of how you're taught to do it. Um, you know, as a medical student, when you first learn all the pulses, and I remember searching my own body for all the, the unexpected pulses that you never read about, like a, um, where the facial artery crosses your the, the mandible and, and, you know, the temporal artery above the ear. And I remember delighting and finding all these different pulses and discovering how many there were beyond just the common ones that kind of most people know. But in modern medicine, I, I presume the same is true in New Zealand. We just become so dependent on technology for better and for worse. But in the wilderness, you really have to rely on your, you know, you have to touch patients. You have to actually listen. There's not just like, well, I maybe heard this or that. I'll just get an x-ray to confirm it. There is no confirming. So I think really um, the basic skills of physical diagnosis are really encouraged because there's no alternative. Um, and I think that's a really big part obviously the other part is being far from definitive care like when you were uh, on the island and if you had had a head injury on your scooter um you know that kind of the decision when to evacuate when not to evacuate and knowing you know that the surgeon is not there to to help you which can be very nerve-wracking for someone who's used to working in a large university hospital with just about every subspecialist at their fingertips yeah, I'd echo those thoughts uh, exactly. Those two points, I think, uh, are really the, the same for me, is that um, being in a in a wilderness, in a remote environment, really, really acts as a wedding stone to your clinical skills, um, which, which I've always really enjoyed. And I think you do take that back um, into your day-to-day clinical practice, and you learn to start to trust uh, your clinical uh, gestalt and the skills that you have that support that gestalt. Um, the other thing is the logistical challenges. I actually used to love that. And often, and I think uh, you and I have talked about this on a number of occasions, that that often it's not the clinical challenges that are immediately before you. You can often get on top of those. Because if you think about it in a remote environment, there's only a limited number of things you can do in that moment. But what you're then faced with is a lot of logistical decisions, which force you to think in kind of creative and lateral ways to solve problems. Um, and I think that's something that's really always appealed to me as well, too. If you don't have... Um, the facility that you would have in a modern built-up area, how are you going to solve this problem? You know what that endpoint needs to be particular for that patient. You know, they need to be definitive care in an urban area, but how are you going to get to that point? And I think that's always an interesting incentive, sort of sometimes very creative um, process actually for clinicians, um, and it really challenges you. Right, and I think that's exactly right. And I think... Um, you know, just being able to pick up the phone and call a consultant and have the patient taken to the OR is is so easy and thoughtless. But as you're saying, Dinesh, you have to really think outside the box. 
And you have to know, you know, you, in many ways, you have to know what's available. You have to know the local geography. You have to know kind of what, uh, you know, what the people around you can do, can't do, won't do. I worked in Northern Alaska on a separate trip. I worked in the ER there. And one of the big points we often faced was to, fl- to evacuate people to Anchorage. The planes had to um, fly up and over Mount McKinley, the tallest mountain in, in North America, uh, now called Denali. And um, that, that posed a problem sometimes when a patient had a pneumothorax or air in their lungs, or sometimes with head injuries, they had pneumocephalus, a little bit of air inside the skull. And, you know, when you go up to those higher pressures or those lower pressures at those higher altitudes, you, you face that problem of the air, the pockets of air expanding. And so in that way, it was sort of like an extra detail of geography that you had to take into your calculus. And I sort of loved that um, those, those very specific geographic and cultural and logistical details that go into making those sometimes life and death decisions. That's, that's part of the challenge of wilderness medicine and part of what I really love about it. Yeah, it was interesting. You mentioned in the book about uh, Indian doctors and because they didn't have uh, the ones that you were working with didn't have access to CT and MRI scans. Um, they were relying on their clinical skills, the basic things like you, you said, the palpation and the, the going right back to basics. And I've read um, recently that uh, medical students are being given uh, point of care ultrasound devices in their first year at medical school almost to replace the the stethoscope and POCUS is something that we I know you use Dinesh and we're trying to improve its availability in urgent care <clears throat> excuse me and they're they're certainly becoming a much more um, available thing and they're going to change medicine in many ways but um, are you fearful that, that that we're going to be losing some of those skills that you've seen in wilderness medicine and in more remote remote places? Uh, and should we, as a medical community, actually be making sure we go back and, and re, re-establish and rekindle those skills? Yeah, I guess in many ways, that's the, that's the same trade-off that we face in modern life so much. You know, I've seen studies where, you know, a medical student with a day of training in, in bedside echocardiography is, is better at diagnosing valvular disease than a cardiologist with a stethoscope. Um, I don't know that that literature is definitive, but um, I believe that that's probably in many cases true. And I guess, you know, moving towards better diagnostics, you're also moving towards more expensive care. Um, and you're also... I guess as just a necessary side effect, you're losing some of that skill. But as you pointed out, Guy, when I went to India, as I mentioned in the book, as a medical student, I was completely astounded by how good the doctors were um, at a hospital in Mumbai, where I shadowed for two months, how incredibly good they were at the physical diagnosis, you know, compared to the American attendings that I had worked with, who, like I do today, you know, I do the physical exam, but I often rely to a large extent on imaging and other diagnostics, but there the patient simply could not afford it. And you have to pay up front. If you're going to get an x-ray, if you're going to get some blood work, you know, you're handing over cash literally before the test gets done. And it's just not possible for many people seeking care at the public hospital where I worked. At the same time, I, I think the, some factors go into that, you know, in one way, the doctors had to rely on their um, stethoscope, for instance, to diagnose valvular disease. And I did see a lot of rheumatic heart disease there, something I've not seen and might never see while practicing here in the US. 
um, you know, the patients were very thin. I think part of that was um, they're poor to begin with. Um, and then they don't seek out medical help until they're so ill that they literally cannot get up and go to work. And so their advanced disease makes them even more cachectic and thinner. And I think in many ways, I think that makes the physical co-exam more useful, you know, um, really delineating the multiple valvular lesions of a rheumatic heart disease case would be much harder in the average, let's say, American patient. You just can't hear as well. You can't feel abdominal organs as well. I don't think, I mean, I just think that's part of the equation and it's kind of a cycle that uh, feeds itself, a negative feedback cycle that's making modern doctors sort of less and less reliant and therefore less and less skilled at the physical exam. Yeah, and those are some interesting points, John. Um, I mean, I, I'm definitely one to, to see technology advance in particular if you could have useful tools like POCUS in wilderness environments. I think we could probably both agree that that's incredibly useful. And, and also, like, I guess the other thing that I think is that it's a great opportunity to cross-reference your skills. So to use your clinical examination and then use whatever piece of technology you have to either confirm or negate what your what your clinical initial clinical assessment is. So there is an opportunity, I think, within that, as long as you're a conscientious practitioner, to, to actually cross-reference and keep your skills sharp using technology as well, rather than using it to replace your clinical skill, using it as an adjunct. And wilderness medicine, obviously, is a an area of medicine that is going to still rely on the older stuff. But you mentioned POCUS. You had POCUS at the top of Everest or, or base camp at Everest, didn't you, Dinesh? I, I did, yeah. And there was a lot of, I, I was using it all the time, really. Um, you know, very useful uh, to diagnose pulmonary conditions at altitude. So, so I was using it literally um, every day in the clinic. And we did not have one in, in Manang, I believe, right, Dinesh? Yeah, that's true. But uh, I can seem to think, John, that it, there would have been probably a, a few circumstances um, where that would have been useful to us, I think. I agree. Can I ask what, what condition specifically you're diagnosing? I guess you're looking at HAPE, high altitude pulmonary edema. Yeah, yeah, in particular, uh, as you're probably familiar with, I mean, a lot of people would come in with very simple upper respiratory tract infections like we used to see in Menang all the time. Um, and, and the difficulty you and I both had was you know, which one of these are pneumonia, which one are their simple viral illness, which one of these are probably signs of um, pulmonary edema. So, so we had to kind of tease these um, pathologies apart from each other. And I find that was particularly useful to have focus on uh, Everest for that reason, because it, it would really give me a good idea to, uh, as to which patients actually had pulmonary edema and I need to, to um, you know, treat them more aggressively and consider uh, getting them down uh, in an expedited way. So that was extremely useful in, in those regards. In addition, you know, we were doing a lot of abdominal scans. We were doing a lot of um, cardiac scans. We were doing, you know, for all the other pathologies that you, you'd expect to come through in any kind of acute setting, we were still using it for all those other reasons as well too. And it really helped to direct, in particular, like we were discussing earlier in this conversation, the logistics of something. What is the dis patient's disposition? Where do they need to go? And, and how comfortable do you feel evacuating them at that moment? Or, um, you know, uh, being able to say, well, I don't think this is this, we can sit and wait on this. So, so the, those kind of decisions, the time critical decisions were, were really helped along by that technology. Right. That's fascinating. And, and that reminds me of one other point about what practicing uh, wilderness medicine gives you is, um, which is that, um, or I guess one of the differences between wilderness medicine and practicing in, in the normal setting is that in the wilderness, I think you, you tend to, you tend to be very aggressive with treatment. You know, if you're not sure, you just 
you kind of end up treating them or you give maybe more antibiotics than you would otherwise. And because you often reason with yourself, like I'm in the middle of nowhere, if this patient gets sicker, it's going to be, you know, there might be no way to evacuate them. And so I do think like having POCUS, like you said, might help refine some of that, you know, aggressive or over-treatment. I mean, not that you have much choice, um, you know, when you're in the middle of nowhere, as you were at Everest ER, but um, being able to bring, you know, the kind of modern, the, the technological advancements of modern medicine to the wilderness, as you just illustrated, is, is a nice way of kind of being more precise in diagnosis and treatment. For sure. Yeah. Do you think that wilderness medicine uh, is something that I guess that there are medics out there, and I'm probably one of them, who might be a little bit um, overly cautious and worrisome. Um, and when you're surrounded by a hospital with everything that at your disposal, including all kinds of specialists, you might um, you might feel that reassurance obviously that that you've got somebody there but also the the need to step in and do something uh, isn't as great because you've got the the surgeon down down the hall or, or, or a five minute ambulance ride away whereas when you're in wilderness situations you've got nobody uh, and you are the only option for that that patient and so it kind of means if you don't do something then then this patient will deteriorate and die. So even if you haven't necessarily done a particular procedure or used used a particular technique before, it's it gives you that confidence to do it because you know that you're the only person who could do it. So does it does it, does that element of medical wilderness work um, kind of rub off on you and make you a more confident doctor in that regard? I can say from my perspective, definitely, yes. Though I, I also think perhaps the confidence, maybe the confidence baseline is already there in, among doctors who do uh, seek out uh, such you know, adventures and working in such places. I've had a lot of doctors who I've worked with in university hospitals ask me or just express their sort of uh, disbelief at what it must be like to work in some of these places. You know, What do you do if the patient's dying or very sick. I mean, obviously the answer is people do die, you know, in the middle of nowhere when you're not near a, an, a sterile OR or university hospital, people die of things that they would not die of if they were in, you know, a large hospital. I mean, that's a fact. But yeah, when I, when I finished residency, I worked in Northern Alaska, one of my first jobs, and I did a lot of procedures there that I had never done before, but with guidance of the local doctors, the family doctors there are amazing, have seen everything and done everything. And to be honest, digital and electronic and internet medical resources are um, an amazing resource for, for doctors working in the middle of nowhere because you can watch an expert do any medical procedure you know, on demand on YouTube or anywhere else, um, and which is very useful. Not that I recommend all doctors go out there to the middle of nowhere with no experience and start experimenting on their patients with procedures they've never done before. But I mean, the, the truth is that there are doctors all over the US and I'm sure parts of New Zealand and every other country where they're working in places where it's not easy to get specialists and where procedures need to be done um, for the first time. So, so there, is that, um, there is that pressure or that challenge um, involved in wilderness medicine. And a, lo a lot of times, you know, um, I, I think of the part of the Hippocratic Oath that says first do no harm. And sometimes when you're in the middle of nowhere, 
doing nothing is doing harm because you're the only one that can help. So it's, it's really the calculus changes in many ways. I agree. There's there's a number of variables in that equation that that change when you're in remote areas. And and I know um, John uh, has a penchant for working in rural areas, even in the U.S. And I have a penchant for working in rural areas in New Zealand. And I think it's uh, and I've made kind of the tongue in cheek comment when someone asked me why I like to go to these, you know, somewhat unsupported hospitals in, in remote places in New Zealand. I said and I, I, my answer has been um, because it's the closest I can get to wilderness medicine without having to. <laughs> to leave the borders and, and i think that's true i think i think even in modern societies what we deem to be modern societies there are a number of areas that are remote and rural where you're faced with similar uh you know logistical challenges and and a real test of some of your clinical skills where some of the, the diagnostics and some of the services are just not available at your particular location so you're you're using similar uh, problem-solving skills that you would in wilderness medicine to solve uh, the problems that you'll face in rural environments, even in, in developed countries. That concludes part one of our discussion. Join us in part two, where we will go on to discuss John's book, The Unseen Body, his inspiration for writing it, the processes involved, and some of the many stories and lessons featured.